0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. You don't have to be a sports fan to appreciate Today's incredible guest, Dan Grunfeld. But if you are, you'll have an extra special appreciation and enjoyment of our conversation. Dan has played and operated at the highest level of professional sports, the NBA, his father, a longtime and legendary player and executive, and he himself, a very high level player as well. But this conversation is about much more than basketball or sports at large, it's about Jewish identity and Jewish history. His father, like I said, Ernie Grunfeld, perhaps the only professional athlete in any of the four major American sports to be the child of Holocaust survivors, and we get into all of that today exploring the story in Dan's book about his family history and his own personal life called By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and An Unprecedented American Dream. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews, you should know spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook Jews, you should know the letter U on Twitter, subscribe or follow wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple podcast, Google, Spotify, please share the podcast with your friends and family so we can continue to grow as we march towards episode 200 in our podcast history. And now to our conversation with longtime basketball player, member of a legendary basketball family and really importantly, an iconic Jewish family with an amazing story. Dan Grunfeld. We are here with Dan Grunfeld. Dan is a longtime basketball player, someone who comes from a very, very interesting basketball family, but also an author and someone from a very interesting Jewish family. And we're going to get into all of those different stories and threads today. How are you, Dan?
1: All right, doing well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: What a pleasure! And we were just talking a minute ago before we started recording that we actually are kind of neighbors to some degree. Me being in the in the DC suburbs on the Maryland side, and you being in the Northern Virginia side, where I know you, right. uh, you know your family has been for many years. So tell us a little bit about where you're from originally and what your early origin was.
1: Sure. So I'm originally from Northern New Jersey. So that's where I was born and raised. Uh, so spent time all over the world playing professional basketball. So I lived in Germany, Spain, Israel. I went to college out west at Stanford and went back to the West Coast after my professional basketball career ended to go to business school and stayed out there for many years. And as I told you, just had our second little boy about a year ago. Thank you so much. My parents are here. My wife is from this area. So it was time to come back and get the help of family with the little ones. Not that it's not great to be around them because it is, but... It's also really nice to have that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got it. You, yeah, when you need them most, you always come crawling back, right? That's right. <laughs> so you you were raised in Jersey, and what what was that like? What was going on? You know, I know your father's been involved in professional basketball for a long time as an executive. So what what was kind of that whole upbringing, and how did you end yeah. up over there?
1: So you mentioned like origin story. I can't go much farther back than the day of my birth, but it's it's interesting. So my birth was literally planned around the NBA basketball schedule. So my dad was an NBA basketball player for the New York Knicks. wore number eighteen, the only Jewish player to ever wear number eighteen for the Knicks. And so he had two long road trips. I was delivered by C-section, and so my parents planned my birth so that way he could go on one road trip, be there for my birth, go on another road trip, and be there for my bris on the eighth day. And uh, you know, you mentioned my book that came out, you know, about a year ago. I write in the book, you know, the Carnegie Deli, the famous New York deli. You know, they catered my bris, and I say, if you're a New York City basketball legend, which my dad was. If you wear number eighteen for the New York Knicks, which my dad did, like the Carnegie Deli will cater your son's bris. You know, so that's <laughs> that's how I came into the world. And yeah, listen, grew up around the NBA. You know, my dad was a player for the Knicks, then became the team's general manager. You know, during the '90s, so those great Knicks teams of Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, John Starks, my dad was running those teams. And so Anthony I was,
0: Mason, so, come on, don't forget Anthony Mason. Of course, I, I, how could
1: I forget? So you know, I was in the locker room, I was at playoff games and just really grew up in, in a basketball world really around around the Knicks. And as you know, and as we'll talk about today, you know, my my dad became very well-known in basketball. He had this great career as a player, a great career as an executive, but he has a whole past that the world really didn't know about. And so I, you know, took five years to to write in my book, which came out. And so that's that was always kind of an interesting part of the story as well.
0: Fantastic. So, yeah, you know, I'm so curious about all these different threads. I mean, I'm a huge sports fan myself, and love uh, love playing basketball. And uh, not not the biggest NBA fan these days. I don't know why. Just the NFL seems to have gotten become more ascendant uh-huh. over the recent years. But tell me about you know what was it like? And we'll get we'll get into the the way back machine and get into mm-hmm. the real story of, of the family's background and before coming to the U.S. But just in terms of your own upbringing and your father's your father's upbringing your father was a basketball player, I guess, from his youth, I'm imagining. What was his story getting into the game? How did he become so prolific? You know, Jews in the NBA are not the most common phenomenon. So how did that all come about?
1: Yeah, that's a longer answer. So let me give a little context. because I, I like what you said. Like, you assume, of course, he was this great player. He must have just taken to it early and, and blossomed that way. It didn't exactly happen like that. My dad is a very, very interesting background. And so, you know, He was a high school basketball All-American out of Queens, New York. He was a college basketball All-American at the University of Tennessee, nine years in the NBA. So really legendary player. That was well known. What wasn't known until my book came out, my dad's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. Wow! And actually, I did a year and a half of research preparing to write my book. And the research suggests he's the only athlete in any of the major American sports leagues. So that's the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, or Major League Baseball. He's the only one with parents who are both Holocaust survivors. So my dad was born in... Romania under communism he came to the United States of America at nine years old landed at JFK airport first time in the States you know fled communism under duress that's a whole a whole other story but got to America spoke fluent Hungarian Romanian and Italian didn't speak a word of English and had never touched a basketball so by nine years old like this is just a European boy who comes to the United States my dad had an older brother who was eight years older than him and what my dad called my uncle in Hungarian their native language translates to English as my king so that's how much my dad loved his older brother My uncle was diagnosed with leukemia and he passed away within a year so at seventeen years old, my uncle passed and you know I'm named after him his name was Lutsi in Hungarian but Leslie in English my middle name is Leslie we know in Judaism right that's a tradition to you know pass on the names of loved ones and so I'm very honest in my book about the obligation the responsibility I feel because of that but You could put yourself in my dad's shoes, you know, immigrants to the United States, kids in Queens are making fun of him because he doesn't speak the language, loses his brother. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors. They have to work six, seven days a week. So my dad went to the local playground in Queens, New York to make friends, learn English, heal from his brother's loss. He started playing basketball. And, you know, my book is called By the Grace of the Game. And basketball was really salvation for my dad. And, you know, a dozen years later, he was standing on top of the Olympic podium as a gold medalist for the United States of America. So it's one of those stories that it, it's just incredible to think how, how it all happened. And that's really why I spent so much time writing the book.
0: It's wild, you know, because growing up in the, I mean, I grew up in Baltimore, but I've been around this, you know, this general area my whole life pretty much, and you know, the Wizards were really the only show in town in terms of NBA. So you hear, you know, Ernie, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, part of his life. But you know, Ernie Grunfeld and executive, you know, obviously executives are in the, in the spotlight. They're getting criticized all the time. And, you know, oh, the yeah. the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, should he stay? Should we keep him? Should we get rid of this guy? You know, all, all that stuff. And you never think of these, you know, people as people, right? As individuals with their own unique story, their their humanity. They're just, you know, it's sports has the tendency maybe to sort of commoditize or objectify people sometimes when you're standing from afar. So it's so interesting to hear that, you know, there's this incredibly rich human story behind this man. It was just, you know, a basketball executive as you know, when I was growing up and a player before that, it's instructive in a way to me to hear that, you know, people are people at the end of the day.
1: Uh, you know? It's true. And I always had that sense growing up because then my dad was running the New York Knicks and that's, you know, when they were great and they were, they went to the final several times. He's on the cover of the paper like a wearing a crown, right? Like he's the king of New York. Then they lose five games in a row and he has a clown nose on the cover of the paper, right? It's like so that that's just kind of the experience. But I'll tell you, like, so when I was a kid and my dad was running the Knicks, I would go to Baston Square Garden, sit in a private skybox, watch playoff games, right? I was privileged for so in so many ways. When my dad was a kid in New York City after losing his brother. He would take the subway from queens and my grandfather would take the subway from the bronx where they had opened a fabric store and they'd meet at madison square garden and they'd buy the cheapest tickets because that's what they could afford and they would sit in the nosebleed section and they'd watch the knicks you know and that's how my dad consumed the knicks as a kid and to think that he would not only play for that team but then run the team years later right it's again it's like a cinderella story but the fans the media People don't always, yeah, they don't always know. And there's not a lot of humanity. One amazing thing about sports is the passion, right? And that's what makes sports great. But, there, you know, you it is good. It's important to always remember that at the end of the day, yeah, these are human beings. And particularly in my dad's case, like his story with the game of basketball is one of the most unique in history.
0: So let's go back and, and speaking of history, try to rewind a little bit even beyond his arrival and tell me a little bit about the origin of the of the family as a whole, you know where was the family living pre-war? What was their experience, you know, during that horrible period in in world history? Really, not to mention Jewish history, you yeah. know, and 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 the whole story of how they emerged from that hell on earth.
1: Yeah. So my grandmother is the star of our family. She's the star of the story. She will turn ninety eight years old in June.
0: Oh my god! So yeah, and where she, is she living?
1: She lives in the Bay Area. You know, we talk every single day, FaceTime every single day. Like, you read my book, like, you'll see, like, she's it, you know, And, and her and I have always been so close. And it really starts with her, right? She's from Transylvania on the border of Romania and Hungary. That's where my dad was born. That's where my grandfather's from. My grandmother was born into a big, happy, Orthodox Jewish family. She had nine siblings. So there was 10 of them, two loving parents. They were very rural, so they didn't have any no running water, no technology, no roads even in her little village, but they had lots of love, lots of laughter in their home. And when the Nazis invaded, my grandmother happened to be visiting an older sister in Budapest. So she had a chance to survive on the run. It was amazing kind of what she went through, what she saw, how she got through it. She had so, she, you know, my grandmother has every quality one would need to survive the Holocaust. She's Smart, savvy, disciplined, tremendous will to live. But she says you could have a, you could have had all those things back then, and it didn't matter. You needed luck, and you needed help. And she had those things. And the most help she got was from Swedish diplomat raul Wallenberg, you know, who's a, a legendary figure in, in Holocaust history, regarded as one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust, credited for saving roughly a hundred thousand Jews in Budapest. He saved my grandmother's life twice, and she, and by the way, my grandmother risked her life to save other people. So she got. Wallenberg issued protective passports to Jews in Budapest called Schutz Passes, and my grandmother got one for herself, but she risked her life to get 17 passes for other people. So, you know, I talk a lot about my book, my family story, and I always say my grandmother is not only my hero, she's also a hero, and it's the truth. She survived the Budapest ghetto just by the skin of her teeth. So when she got home eventually, after surviving, she would learn that five of her siblings and both of her parents were killed, the, the, the majority of them in Auschwitz.
0: So, and I guess I imagine this was, Hungary was was invaded later, you know, in the 44, towards the end of the war. So I imagine That's that, right. you know, does she ever talk about her experience in the preceding years, you know, 39 till 44, what that oh, was yeah. like, what they knew was going on, what they didn't know, what they believed, what they couldn't allow themselves to believe and and so forth.
1: Yes, It's all in the book. And I did so much research because it was really important for me to understand these things. And so Transylvania on the border of Romania-Hungary, it's always been a disputed territory. So it was Romania for a long time. And then it became Hungary. So, And it did happen later in the war that the Nazis invaded. And as my grandmother describes it, they didn't quite know what was happening. That was purposeful by the Nazis, right? They obscured history and there was all this propaganda. So my grandma says, you know, we didn't know. There, there were rumors and, and people were talking, but it wasn't really clear exactly what was happening. So life was, it kind of just proceeded as normal. Of course, it was very scary times. It's World War II, but again, kind of isolated in a remote village. They were happy, right? They were just kind of going about their daily lives. They didn't quite understand the scope of all that was going on. And that was by design. And in, in my grandmother's town, they didn't even have a radio. They had they had a radio in their nearby biggest city, right? So she would say occasionally... We could hear a radio broadcast, but even that was not exactly accurate information. So they just kind of went through life and didn't exactly know the danger they were in.
0: And so she just happened to have been visiting her sister in Budapest when the Nazis invaded.
1: I'll tell you. So she was in Budapest and the Nazis invaded and they got a letter from my great grandfather almost immediately that said, come home now. And so they packed their suitcases and they got ready to go to the train station. The next day, right before they're about to leave, they got another letter from my great grandfather. And all it said was, if you can stay where you are. And that was the last communication my grandmother ever had with her father, who was her hero. He was taken to Auschwitz where he was killed. His name was Solomon Samuel. And my oldest son's name is Solomon after Mm -hmm. him. Right. So I mentioned I'm named after my uncle. My son is named after my great grandfather. Right. That's again. Jewish tradition, that's what we do. You know, you carry on the history, the legacy. But my grandma still says it was that second letter that saved her from Auschwitz. She thinks my grandfather panicked at first and said to his daughters, like, come home, but then said, Wait a second, everyone here knows they're Jewish. This is a small town in Budapest, they'll have a better chance of surviving, right? It's a big city and no one knows who they were. And he was right, you know, my grandmother was able to to survive. And she so was with two two sisters there. One of them also survived, but one of them did not survive. She was killed on a death march.
0: So what did, did your grandmother do at at that point? She start trying to, you know hide her identity or start how did she actually make
1: yeah. it? Yeah. so she hid and bombed out buildings. The Schutz pass really helped, right. That Wallenberg issued because it gave Jews in Budapest a level of security for some time. so she had a Schutz pass. and she was just kind of hiding. She was, you know, trying to just stay away. And I I go all the details in the book. She actually had friends who were able to rent an apartment. So she stayed there for a while. And there was a a woman and a man and the man had gotten a a uniform of a German soldier. And so that was able, he was able to kind of, you know, go under the radar because of that. But eventually he had too much to drink and told someone he was Jewish and then The Nazis came and they took them to the Budapest ghetto and that's where, and then the Schutz pass was no longer recognized. So my grandmother was, she was put in the ghetto. So she was a prisoner there. And I'll tell you this story because it's so amazing. So she knew that, you know, Wallenberg had issued this pass, is in the ghetto, and she was reunited with one of her older brothers in the ghetto. Nazis stayed out, right? That was pretty common in in ghettos in Europe. They let Jews inside and minister daily life. And at the end of the war, my grandmother and her brother saw 20 Nazis enter the ghetto, ghetto with machine guns over their shoulders. And then word quickly spread they were there to kill the remaining eighty thousand jews in the ghetto of course my grandmother being one of them so my grandma and her brother ran up the stairs of the building that they were sleeping in they found a small attic space room for about five five or six people comfortably there were more than a dozen packed in there right because they're, they're just fighting for their lives and they waited for 10 minutes and then 20 minutes and then an hour and they didn't hear shouting screaming shots they didn't hear anything when they went to check The ghetto was clear. The Nazis had retreated. And soon the ghetto was liberated by Russian and Romanian soldiers and they were free to go. And my grandma never knew why the Nazis retreated that day. She was free, you know. That was in 1945. In 1985, 40 years later, my dad's playing in the NBA. He's this big basketball star. My grandmother lives, you know, in the United States, in the Bay Area. A movie was made about Raul Wallenberg's life. Richard Chamberlain played Wallenberg. And it was in that movie that my grandma saw one of the final scenes of Wallenberg learning about the order to massacre the remaining Jews in the Budapest ghetto. And he got in his car and he raced to the ghetto's gates and he confronted the general and he told him, let these people go. They're innocent. I will personally guarantee that you'll hang for this. You have to let these people go. And he convinced the general to call off the massacre. So it wasn't until 40 years later that my grandmother learned that Wallenberg not only saved her life, not once, but twice during the war.
0: Incredible. Can you share a little bit about who Wallenberg was, you know, people may not be familiar. Obviously, it's a it's a name that's heard in discussion or study of Holocaust history, but people may not be familiar exactly with his story and what he did you know, for the Jewish people. Yeah.
1: So the Holocaust Museum in Washington, DC is on Raul Wallenberg way. Just to give just to give context for how prominent he is and how important he is to this history. He was a Swedish diplomat spent some time in the United States in his early life Studied at the University of Michigan so well traveled comes from a very prominent family and not Jewish but of course knew what was going on and he made it his mission to save the Jews in Budapest so he went from Sweden to Budapest to help Jews and that's when he issued his protective passports he set up kind of homes in Budapest that where Jews could stay with a level of safety and so he just did all he could to help Jews my grandmother still sheds tears over him a month or two ago I was spending time with her and we were talking about him and you know she cried a bit and she said you know he did everything for us and there was nothing we could do for him because he was apprehended by the Russians after the war and he was never seen again so he risked his life and he lost his life to help people who needed it and something that really struck me and I went my grandmother I didn't know this before I wrote the book otherwise I would have included it in there my grandma literally just told me when I was visiting with her, he was 32 years old when he did this, right? Like I always in my mind envisioned. I don't know what I someone. Yeah, it's some older man, older, right? Yeah. right. You know, younger than I am now. And I said, "Wow, at 32 years old, he left his safe homeland and went to Budapest to help." You know, and so yeah, he's he'll always be a symbol in my family of heroism. Not only in my family, but everywhere he's a hero. But goodness, doing what's right. And in my family story, there's a lot of darkness, but there's much more light. And Wallenberg is a big part of that.
0: Is there any sense of what impelled him to take this stance? Was it just a, a humanitarian impulse? Or was there something you know that had influenced him earlier in his life that he felt a, a kinship to Jews? Like-
1: it, it's a good question. I think he had some distant Jewish relatives as I understand it, it was, yeah, there's the humanitarian angle. And, you know, there are a lot of you know, righteous Gentiles, like during the war, like who helped, who showed up, who tried to save people. And and there are many prominent examples of people, of course, Oscar Schindler being a big one because of the, the movie and otherwise. But Wallenberg is just one of those people who saw, who knew what was happening and said, we we need to help. And that's what he did.
0: Incredible. So uh, again, your your grandmother was this great recipient of this Generosity, this I mean, that's just to make it to say an understatement, this this life-saving kindness. And ultimately after the war, I guess she was she in a DP camp.
1: No, she wasn't. So when they were liberated from the ghetto, she was free. And and I write in the book because I, I I had to research so much and I asked every question I can imagine. So I said to my grandma, like, you, you get liberated from the ghetto, then what? <laughs> right? Like, what do you do? And her brother was there, and one of her sisters had survived as well. And she said, you know, we found some thread, like just some thread. And she said, we traded that thread for a little food. Like that's where they were at in their lives. They're starving and they have to figure out like, how do I eat? Like, how do I keep going? So they did things like that. Eventually she got on a train. She made her way back home. And then you have to rebuild, you know, and and her home, like they had this big, happy family, as I described. My great grandfather was a landowner, so they had crops. And they had animals it was all decimated looters had come you know that's what happened in europe when the jews left people came and took all their things and i write in the book my grandmother found one metallic serving spoon for milk they were kosher and it was and it was in the back of one of the drawers it was one of the only things remaining and she, you know, she held it to her heart, kept it in her possession for 75 years and gifted it to me. So, like, it's like my, my pri- priceless possession. I write about it in the book. But the house was, was decimated. And one of her older brothers was at a labor camp in Hungary, and he was home. And so, you know, and I asked her, what, what do you do at that point? She says, the human instinct is to rebuild. And so my grandparent, my grandfather survived the war in a labor camp, actually the same one as that brother of my grandmother's who came home. That's how they kind of connected after the war got married very quickly, had my uncle and just tried to rebuild. I mean, that's that's the human instinct.
0: Yeah, there was, I mean, you, you always hear stories about how it wasn't the most elaborate dating processes and, you know, they weren't matching on eHarmony's 39, you know, checklists of compatibility. I think people were just finding almost anyone in a certain way and just connecting, well, partnering up and, and building families, right?
1: So I'll and tell so, you, yeah, no one settled, right? My grandparents, so I'm not suggesting that. But the day my grandmother got home, she was wearing the same clothes for months in budapest so she had a thin cotton dress a raggedy blue overcoat some beat-up shoes that's all she had she was freezing in budapest and so when she got home my my great uncle who was there said first things first we need you need new clothes right we need to." so she said my friend who i was in the labor camp with us from this area they had been liberated months prior said he opened up a small shop and they have clothes there let's take you to get some new clothes So it was that day that my grandmother walked through the doors of my grandfather's clothing shop. They had kind of like been associated before the war, but didn't really know each other. So the first day she got back, they met and then were married not long thereafter. So again, it's not that they settled, but how do you go on after that loss? And my grandfather had, he lost both of his parents and his sisters. So he had nobody. So here are people whose lives are destroyed, coming back, trying to rebuild. And yeah, I think companionship, that really... Help the healing process.
0: How long were they married for?
1: My grandfather passed away in 1986, oh, wow. and so they were married for 40 years.
0: Unbelievable. She's been, been alone for almost like I don't know, for another 40. Like she that.
1: has, but she she never dated another man after that. So you could say they've been married this whole time in a sense, right? Because they were, you know, they had this beautiful boys. Although my uncle unfortunately passed, but my dad had this amazing basketball career, and they were able to experience that together. And so. Yeah, listen, it, it 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 worked out.
0: Incredible. What brought them to America? How did they end up getting over there?
1: So they spent 10 years trying to leave communism. And it was so brutal. Like the Romanians in particular were known for their brutality. And so my grandparents had friends who were jailed, tortured, or killed for even saying a word against the government or having any illegal money. All money was illegal. And by the way, my grandparents were able to save up illegal money on the black market because that's what you did under in communism. And when they left, They they weren't allowed to take anything of value out of the country. But they they had chutzpah. They survived the Holocaust. Like, we need to figure out how to get our money out. And they were able to smuggle all their Romanian money out and all their American dollars. And they're both really interesting stories detailed in the book. The American dollars, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, they were able to elicit the help of one of the biggest comedians in the United States of America, a guy named Buddy Hackett, who's very famous, very well-known he he smuggled my grandparents illegal money out so it's a it's a whole thing but you know it took them 10 years and it was actually israel who paid money for each jewish family that the communists would allow to leave so my family had visas to go to israel passports and that's where the majority my grandmother had four surviving siblings three of them were in israel one is in the united states and so they spent six months in rome after leaving romania and my grandfather wanted to come to the us because he knew about the opportunity my grandmother still says you know i could say no to your grandpa that wasn't a problem but my uncle had been dating a girl in romania who went to the states and he wanted to go and she said well that was a different story you know i couldn't say no to your uncle so they worked with highest hebrew immigrant aid society you know who protects refugees all over the world and highest helped my family get to the united states so they you know arrived at jfk airport in 1964 and that's where my dad you know as this little boy you know not speaking the language at all spoke three languages fluently never played basketball in his life Came to the United States trying to rebuild.
0: So now, obviously, your father was fairly tall, right? So in order to have that career, so were your grandparents tall? Where did where did that come from?
1: It's funny you say that. So after the book came out, you know, I've had people all over the world are reaching out to me to this day about the story. Someone reached out to me from Europe, from from Hungary, and said, you know, I or Romania actually, Transylvania. Said, you know, I knew your grandparents growing up. Your grandfather Hosu, and I, that that was not a term I'd ever heard. We call my grandfather Apu. And so I said to my dad, Hey, someone said they knew Apu, but they called him Hosu. Like, what is that? He goes, Oh, yeah, that was his nickname. Do you know what it means? I said, No, I have no idea. So it means long, because you know, he was six foot three, right? He was like, he was the tallest guy in town. So they called him long. So, yeah, my dad's six six. I'm six six. My grandmother, probably five, six at her peak, you know, five, seven, maybe she's <laughs> lost a couple of years. <laughs> right. As, as that happen, she's almost 98. And my dad has some cousins who are pretty big. And listen, he has the physical attributes and that helps. But, and you see this from the book, he lost his brother. His parents survived the Holocaust. He was an immigrant. Basketball for him was salvation. It was something to belong to, right? So like, there's a lot of six, six people at the park, you know what I mean? Or, or people who would eventually grow big, Right. He was one of the greatest players in new york city like for generations he was a transcendent basketball player and he wouldn't have flown so far so fast had he not been moving away from such tragedy and that's really evident in the book right basketball just shining its light on him and being an escape because he wasn't just like good at the game it was something bigger he was a good nba basketball player but he was a phenom in high school and in college you know he graduated from the university of tennessee as the school's all-time leading scorer and to this day he's the fifth leading scorer in the history of the sec right that was for 40 years some people don't know that because he was a prominent executive and they just know him as running teams but he was four-time first team all sec again olympic gold medalist like he was larger than life and but there the the pain And the loss and the tragedy that was driving that was something, you know, pretty profound and hard for, of course, anyone to really know. And he doesn't talk about it even to this day. And I'm privileged in a lot of ways. And one of them is that I have a generation of separation from all that tragedy. So I can kind of reflect upon it, learn from it. My dad was born from the ashes of the Holocaust. You know, he lost his brother. He fled his homeland under duress. Like He doesn't have that luxury. So basketball was just his gift for him.
0: He must have really honed his game. Did he have any great influences as an early player, great coaches? I mean, how did he learn the game so, so yeah. well? Yeah, so
1: he really learned the game on the playgrounds of New York City, the Austin Street Playground in Queens, New York, right? And like toughness. And my dad was known, very rugged. Listen, he was 6'5", 225 in high school. So I have people who played against him in high school reach out to me and say, "Oh, I played against your dad. Like, it was, he was just un- he was just unstoppable he was force. A dude, yeah. <laughs> but he was also so rugged and so tough and so hard-nosed and he learned that at the park and the playground in New York City. So that was really a, a formative place for him. One of his real role models in the game of basketball was Dave DeBuscher, who's this great player for the New York Knicks. He's a he's a Hall of Famer, was named one of the top 50 players in NBA history when the league announced it. So his – and my dad, you know, when he used to watch the Knicks as a kid after losing his brother, he loved the busher because he was a little undersized. He just played with so much heart, so much passion. And my dad loved that. He just loved to see someone who would just do do anything for the team. So if you ever go – if you go to Madison Square Garden and look in the rafters, number 22, Dave DeBusher, is retired at Madison Square Garden for the New York Knicks, right? But if you go to Knoxville, Tennessee – Number twenty-two, Ernie Grunfeld is retired. Right, no one will ever wear that for the Volunteers. And so, my dad wore twenty-two after DeBuscher because he just kind of the way he played the heart. And and interestingly, I just mentioned like my dad was this incredible scorer. But when people reach out to me about him as a player, they don't talk about his scoring. They always say there was not a loose ball he didn't dive on. There was, you know, it, it's about the heart. And, and listen, like well, that's
0: how uh, I was picturing kind of like a scrappy. You know, defender, rebounder kind of guy, but it sounds like he's a prolific scorer.
1: I'm not sure, defender. <laughs> he would, he, because I was a pro player too, right? And I wasn't the best defender. I was a very good scorer. But so we talk about like defense wasn't necessarily our strong suit, but he'll always say, uh, you know, he, he had his moments. And it was actually funny because recently I was at my, I was with my dad and we were just hanging out. It was in the evening and there was a game on NBA TV. It was a classic game and it was the Knicks versus the Celtics. And my dad was guarding Larry Bird. You know, and, and he was doing a good job on him. You know, the announcer was saying, Ernie Gretfell, you know, he was like bothering him. And so my dad was saying, see, I can play defense once in a while, but uh, no, nah, he was just, he was just a, a dominant scorer. I mean, high school and college for sure. In the NBA, he was more of a role player, but always rugged, tenacious, tough, lot of heart. That was really his calling card.
0: Yeah. What, what made the transition to the NBA, you know, more difficult? Why? I mean, at that point, I guess just so much talent or so much size, like what happens in that jump?
1: It's a whole different level. And it's funny because my dad played at Tennessee with Bernard King, you know, a Hall of Famer, and led the NBA in scoring. They were called the Ernie and Bernie Show, one of the greatest <laughs> duos in college basketball history. And actually, ESPN made a great 30 for 30 about them called oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I oh, they're, that. they're one of the most legendary duos. They played in the NBA together. I call Bernard Uncle B. You know, He lived up the street from us in New Jersey. So it's this incredible story because Bernard is this black man from Brooklyn, New York, and my dad is this white immigrant from Queens, New York. So they're from the same city, but from their very different worlds. And they went down to Knoxville, Tennessee and just became legends, you know, together and separately. But they were kind of, they were kind of equals in college. They both averaged more than 25 points per game. They were co-SEC player of the year together. And my dad laughs because a scout one time went down to Knoxville and my dad learned this later on from his coach and, and was kind of evaluating my dad and Bernard and saying, well, you know, Bernard, he, he's got a lot of talent, but boy, Ernie, Ernie sure is good too. It's, you know, it's kind of a toss up. Bernard King averaged 24 points per game as a rookie in the in the NBA, you know. And my dad averaged seven points per game. So Bernard's kind of ability and talent just continued to rise. And yeah, my dad probably the size, you know, he didn't have that incredible advantage anymore. The the quickness, which he wasn't the quickest person, although he was, he was an incredible athlete. But you know, just those little things kind of catch up to you at the next level. And again, very solid NBA player, you know, he. He started at point guard, which was not his natural position for a team that went to the Western Conference Finals in the NBA. You know, he averaged 16 points per game throughout the playoffs that year. Like he had a very nice career, but he he wasn't a dominant force to say the least. Whereas his teammate Bernard King averaged 32.9 points per game in the NBA, right? So like sometimes, you know, cream continues to rise to the top.
0: Fascinating. It sounds like they stayed close throughout the years.
1: Which is amazing. And they still talk every month. People ask me that all the time. Like, your dad and Bernard still you know, are they still in touch? You know, they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated together, Double Trouble from Tennessee. They were, again, I get all the time people reaching out about, you know, Ernie and Bernie. And they're they're like family. Bernard is. He's like family to us. You know, and it's very, it kind of fits into the broader narrative of the story with basketball being a source of healing and of togetherness. And and the game really brought my dad and Bernard together, again, from two very different worlds. And now they'll, they'll be friends forever. So it's a very, very cool story. I always tell people you should watch the documentary, but read the book first. You know, <laughs> read the book, but then the movie's good.
0: There you go. How, so, how would your dad get into executive, you know, work? And and tell me a little bit about that. And then I want to hear about your career as well. After that,
1: sure. So, my dad played the last four years of his NBA career with the Knicks, and he had some opportunities at the end of kind of his contract to go elsewhere. I think Cleveland and Utah maybe he had some opportunities, but the Knicks they saw something in him. Very hardworking. Great ability to relate to people, great communicator, which is kind of ironic because he came to the United States not speaking English. And actually, my grandparents wanted him to go to a yeshiva in the Bronx when he came. That's what they knew, Jewish education. So they wanted to go to a yeshiva, but he was denied admittance because he didn't speak English. Oh my. So he went to PS 101 in Queens, you know, and that fast forward until you know he's a player for the Knicks, great communicator, great teammate. So they offered him a job broadcasting games. Also ironic in English, right? Broadcasting games for the Knicks on the radio. So he became a broadcaster and kind of was helping out, you know, at practice once in a while. And they just saw something in him, made him an assistant coach, made him an executive, and he quickly rose the ranks to the where he was running the team in in so many years and did a great job. Again, built two NBA finals teams. The Knicks are, it's a very hard market in New York. You know, there's a lot of pressure there, but he rose to the occasion and and had just an incredible run. And then was the GM of the Milwaukee Bucks, was the GM of the Washington Wizards. So he is one of the longest tenured lead executives in NBA history. So again, that boy who came to the United States, not speaking the language, never playing basketball, to have that much success is really, really incredible. But no one has known this story. So I've had his peers, NBA general managers, even NBA owners, players certainly reach out to me and say, wow, Ernie, we had no idea. And you know, Ray Allen, who's this one of the top 75 players in NBA history, he wrote the forward for my book. My dad was the GM of the box when Ray was a star player, and Ray was appointed to the board of the Holocaust Museum by President Obama. He's been this incredible advocate, ally, Holocaust education. He's taking groups to Auschwitz. Every time his teams played in Washington, D.C., he'd take teammates to the Holocaust Museum. So really just incredible work with Holocaust education and remembrance. He had no idea my dad's parents were survivors. And we, he had been to our house, right? So it's just not something my dad talks about. So again, the book has kind of like shined a light on it. But his all of his success on and off the court has just been so improbable.
0: That's a wild story. I had no idea that Ray Allen was such a an, an advocate in that way.
1: Oh, big time! He he walks the walk. He he's he's really an incredible person.
0: That's awesome. So you're I, I mean, how old were you when your dad came to DC? Because the way I remember him is as a as a Wizards, exec or bullets or Wizards, whatever it was at the time. How how long ago was that? How old were you at the time?
1: I was entering my sophomore year in college. You were already out of the house
0: at that point, okay?
1: I was already out of the house. Yeah, so that that was the back nine of my dad's career, actually. Right? Even though it was it was a humongous chunk of it, but he had already led the Knicks for many many years. He led the Milwaukee Bucks, and you know they'd been to the finals, like I mentioned, the Knicks several times. They were in Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Finals, one of his Bucks teams. Like he had been through it, right? So came to Washington really in the, in the prime, in the middle and the prime of his career, but he was there for quite some time. So yeah. And it had a great run, like built several very, very competitive playoff teams. And yeah, it was, again, it's no one has really understood that, that origin until now.
0: Who are some of his close friends in the game? You know, especially over the later years and such, you know, either executives or or players other, it sounds like Ray Allen was one, any other notable players or personalities that he was really close with?
1: Yeah. I mean, he's been around for so long. He knows everybody. One, one name that comes to mind, of course, is Patrick Ewing. Patrick was a player for the Knicks when he was a rookie my dad's last year. So actually, Patrick carried my dad's bags on the road as like a rookie kind of rookie Amazing. work, you know, <laughs> which is ironic because this is like he was the first pick in the draft. He's a Hall of Famer legend. But then Patrick was the star of the team when my dad was the GM. And I grew up with Patrick's kids and his son, Patrick Jr. Pat Jr. is yeah. like a very, very close friend of mine. We... Still are in touch to this day. And so, you know, Patrick is just someone. He's got the Georgetown
0: dad... roots, of course. He's just local. So.
1: Georgetown. That's right. And then another person, Mitch Kupchak. You know, Mitch sure. is right now the president general manager of the Charlotte Hornets, and he was with the Los Angeles Lakers, Lakers. for a long time. Yep. Mitch and my dad played on the Olympic team together in 1976 for Dean Smith. And, you know, they both won the gold medal together, and they've just been lifelong friends. And so Mitch also in touch. Not only my dad and Mitch in touch, I'm in touch with Mitch. And so... That's another person that, that he's you know been close with over the years for sure in the NBA. And it's just it's such a long list because he's really respected and admired and liked by his peers. You know, he's just a no-nonsense, hardworking, honest guy who people just really respect.
0: What ultimately ended his tenure and what, what did he end up doing you know, in retirement?
1: Yeah, so he he was with the Wizards think, for 17 seasons, and so they parted ways think, in 2019. And, yeah, he's living in the D.C. area. You know, I'm here with my kids. My sister's here with her kids, right? He's enjoying being a grandfather. He's still connected to the game, so talks to people, you know, regularly and helps out with some things from time to time. But enjoying a little bit of space. I mean, he spent 42 straight seasons with an NBA team. So that's a number. And particularly, you know, again, you you heard the history, right? Coming to this country, everything he went through, 40-plus years straight in the NBA. So. He he's earned a little bit of peace, quiet space, you know, not having the pressure because there's a lot of perks to to doing what he did, running teams, but there's a lot of pressure, right? Fans don't have context and media; they don't really know exactly what's going on. But of course, it's their job to comment, to talk about it, to criticize, and that it's it's hard to sit in that chair for so long. And but he he has big shoulders, literally and figuratively, he's a massive individual, but he also could handle all that pressure and yeah, listen, what he's been through, what our family's been through, like sports is wins and losses, right? They've been through life and death.
0: Yeah. Does, does he go to games still and things like that ever? Or?
1: Not not much. The, the experience is so good at home to watch a game, you know, to have to park. And even me, when I think about having to go to a game and I'm spoiled in that way because I grew up going to games, right? I've had so much access. So there's nothing that, you know, so I've been there. So I, I'm not kind of, you know, talking down the experience because it is a great one, but I've just had that experience a lot. And of course, so is he. So at this point, you know, you can sit in the comfort of your own home on a nice TV and watch a game. It's not, not bad.
0: There you go. So tell me about your own playing career. So, you know, you inherited the genes of the six, six frame and, and you've had your own prominent, you know, playing career. I, I you know, noticed that you played overseas and, and you mentioned Israel, which I'd love to hear about, so, you know, what was that career like? And, You know, was there a pressure early on for you to get into the game or was, you know, oftentimes those who are children of greats, have a very hard time finding their own identity, making it something that's of their own volition, of their own choosing versus kind of just being thrust into a role. How was that for you as as a young person coming up?
1: Yeah, I'm very honest about it in the book. Like there was a lot of pressure, not from my parents. And I'm lucky to have great supportive parents. My dad and my mom always tell me, you don't have to play basketball because your dad plays basketball. Do what do what you want to do. Find what you love. I just love the game. And it, it, it's hard when you grow up and your parent is very prominent in what you do. It's hard to disassociate from that. And there are a lot of perks from that too, right? Like you the have access, resources, yeah. you have access. So like not to I you have to acknowledge that, right? I had a great role model, but my success was never my own, right? It was always, oh, of course, he's starting for that team. It's Ernie's kid or of course, you know. So I, and that that made me angry, right? And and I come from such privilege, unlike my family, but I inherited that work ethic. I inherited that gene. And so it kind of became my thing to say, okay, you'll see, I'll I'll show you. And I was maniacal, right? And I did things and I trained with people and I pushed myself to levels and it's all in the book that like may or may not have been healthy (laughs) or mentally and physically, but like I was so motivated to succeed. Part of it was to prove that I could do it to myself and to others. Part of it was because of this history that we're talking about right my grandparents survived the holocaust my uncle passed tragically early like you know when you carry that you want to make good on that right? you want to take advantage of your opportunity so for all those reasons there was a ton of pressure that i put on myself it motivated me it drove me but it also held me back right because all things in proportion and i think you know, so yes, it's good to be motivated and disciplined. And listen, I, I got a full scholarship to play at Stanford. You know, I was a first team All Pac-10 player there. I had a very fre- successful professional career. Like it was a, it was a really good run. I wish that I would have smiled a little more, enjoyed it a little more, but it, it was always complicated for me.
0: How did you go to, to Stanford? I mean, that's obviously one of the great academic institutions in the country. You know, it's incredible to be able to have that educational pedigree. Why did you go out west?
1: That was like almost like a planted question, but I know it wasn't. So it's just a very good question. And you'll see why I say that. So I wanted to go to play at Stanford from the time I was in sixth grade. Okay. Because my, we were visiting my, my grandmother lives 25 minutes from Stanford's campus. So we were visiting her and my sister was looking at colleges. She was still a little young and we went to Stanford's campus. My sister liked it, but I was obsessed, you know, great. And I was a good student, great school, great basketball program, most importantly, close to my grandmother. And I write in the book, which is true me playing basketball at Stanford saying that at that point in time in my life was a long shot cuz all I was was a slow Jewish kid from the suburbs but yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I was at Stanford I just been to the final four but listen I just I was very tenacious I had my mind on it and I got there and it was a combination of luck timing and some skill right anything that happens you need luck and all those things happen for me and, and this is a big reason why I wrote the book because I was able to make that happen and get to Stanford primarily just because I thought I could, because I had seen what my dad overcame and I'd seen what my grandmother overcame. So I had always the inspiration and the, the idea that anything was possible. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to play it safe. But like, if you could have taken a Polaroid picture of me when I said that, you would have been like, okay, kid, relax. Like, <laughs> like let's center yourself a little bit. Right. But I just kind of, I believed, and that's such a big part of it. So I just kept going, kept working. And listen, I grew right. Like, yeah, I became six six. I I had some skills on the basketball court. I did well in the classroom. That that helped, no doubt about it. But, but a big part of it was just believing that I could do it.
0: What did you study there? And I mean, yeah, I, I guess for athletes, you gotta believe in yourself and you gotta be a dreamer, right? But yeah. you also have to be a realist. And at some point you, you gotta gotta know your level, right? And No, like, you know, where am I going to play? Am I I an NBA guy? You know, it's, it's interesting now. I love following like the, uh, the Ryan Terrell story. I don't know how much you follow that. Of course,
1: I was just at Yachiva a few weeks ago, chatting with their players. And yeah, there you go. Exactly.
0: So it's fascinating. You know, how much do you say, okay, I'm a real NBA prospect versus how much you say, Hey, you know, I'm really an overseas guy. I'm a, I can, I can play in Israel, be a great ambassador. Like you got to really know, you got to be kind of a little crazy and and kind of a dreamer to kind of push yourself but you also got to be realistic. How did you identify where you sort of slotted in, you know, packed all packed out? I mean, that's a good conference, right? I mean, we're talking big power five. So how did you know where you were destined for and that balance between being realistic, but also having great dreams?
1: I think at that age, you push as high as you can. You dream as big as you can. You just have to work for it. You just optimize, right? And actually- Trying to project at that age, I don't think is so valuable yet because you just want to push, right? And so, and just some some context on my career, my sophomore year at Stanford, we were the number one team in the country. So we started the season 26 and zero. So we won our first wow. 26 games. That's in the Pac-10, Arizona, UCLA, sure. USC, Oregon, Washington. Like we didn't lose a game until our last game of the conference, right? I averaged three and a half points per game. I was terrible from the field. I was one of the worst play. Like, I was just, and I'm very honest about this in the book. It was so painful how horrible I was playing. I also missed a shot at the buzzer in the NCAA tournament when we got upset in the second round as a number one seed, okay? So this was, this was my sophomore year, but we would have NBA players who were training in the Bay Area during the summer come in and, and train with us at Stanford, and I would hold my own in pickup games. And so I... I, I said, I'm an NBA player. It's just a matter of how do I get it going? Between my sophomore and my junior years, I worked out with a very someone who'd become a prominent trainer. <laughs> he has a nickname, Hell's Trainer. He used to train for the military. It, it's very extreme, but I pushed myself as far as I could push. And my junior year at Stanford, I averaged 18 points per game. And I was the second leading scorer in the conference. And I was projected as a late first round or early second round pick. So I, I had made it. And in one of our final home games of the season on national television with Tiger Woods sitting courtside, I tore my ACL. So I had been there. I, I had gotten there like I was. And from that performance, I was an All-American the next year, just based on So that's why I was first team All-Pac-10, all right? So that was kind of my journey. But then I have this injury. But I said, I've been to the, that, the top because I, I made it. Essentially, like I got to that level, and I'm going to get back there. And you just push. And so i went to training camp with the new york knicks after my second professional season after it took me a year and a half to recover from the injury i had a very good second year i was one of the last cuts for the knicks and one of their assistant coaches kenny atkinson who would become a head coach for the brooklyn nets he was like my workout guy in new york and we became close and to this day if i see him the first thing they'll say is you should have made it you were good enough you should have made it we had they had 15 guys under contract but I made the level of being able to play in the NBA. Listen, I would never have been a, like a star player or a starter. I, I knew my limits, but I pushed, I pushed. But then after it didn't work out with the Knicks and I was in Europe, my team won a championship in Spain. I was playing in the top league in Europe and the ACB in Spain. At that point, I said, this is my level because now becomes more of a business where I said, you know, you start doing that calculation of I'd lose three months in Europe and, you know, you kind of know where your place is. So, I kind of had that dialogue with myself later on in my career. But when you're starting out, you just push, just go as, as hard and as high as you can and see see where you land.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you have a relationship at all with, with Doug Gottlieb. I always, I enjoy listening to his podcast and I've gotten, you know, I've learned a lot about this from his story, just kind of bouncing around yeah. and obviously I don't know him at all. Just hearing his journey. Uh, yeah. Um, Doug
1: is a friend of mine. I was on his podcast about the book and uh, yeah, Doug was, Doug was kind of an assistant coach on our Maccabea team in 2009. So I played for Bruce Pearl, who's the coach of Auburn. He became very prominent recently,
0: Bruce Pearl for standing up for Israel and stuff like that. He became a big kind of a folk hero in in the, in the, in the community.
1: Bruce Bruce really really cares about the state of Israel he's a dear dear friend amazing basketball coach and so we won gold together in 2009 in Israel and Doug kind of helped out there and so we still I still keep in touch with Doug and yeah he he has an interesting perspective on kind of what because he was a very great college player Notre Dame then Oklahoma State and so yeah it's you have to figure out what works for you you know and 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 what works for me won't work for the next guy and you have to always respect it but I think when you're starting out and when you're going for something as an athlete, you never think small, right? You never think well, I'll probably have to, you know, you think, no, like I'm going as high as, as is possible. And then you figure it out later on, like kind of once you become a little bit more realistic.
0: Tell me briefly just about your time in Israel. Cause at least on your bio, you know, that I looked online it says that you spent some time playing in, in Israel league. And how was that?
1: Uh, incredible. So when I played in the Maccabee games, I had a year left on my contract in Spain. And that was my first time in Israel and my sister's first time as well, my older sister. And after a few days, we were both kind of like, this is life-changing, right? Just to be in Israel, the home of the Jewish people, you know, built to protect and preserve the the Jewish people. That's where most of our family went after the Holocaust, where my family was supposed to go until at the last minute, went to the States. I write in the book, you realize Israel is the home to every Jew around the world, whether they know it or not. And it is. And I felt that. And I said to my sister. When my contract is over in Spain, I'm coming to Israel to finish my career. And that's what I did. So I played two years in Herzliya, two years in Jerusalem. And it, it was incredible. The basketball was, that part of it was good. But the culture, I have so much family there, reconnecting with great aunts, great uncles, cousins, having Shabbat dinner with dear friends and family, and just being there, right? You could feel it in your bones. Like, and I, it's it's such a special place. And yeah, it, unforgettable
0: you have a favorite spot in the holy land
1: such a tough one you know there's something about being i mean being at the wall is just something that is deeper you know it's just it just hits you and i played for apple jerusalem so i live 15 minutes from the old city but anytime we're in the old city like there's just something about it listen i love tel aviv i love the dead sea which is such an amazing experience there's so much about israel that i love but being in jerusalem and being at the in the old city and being at the wall like that always hits me
0: nothing like it i, I can't disagree with that it's it's an incredible incredible place and I have, i'm lucky to in my work be able to go there pretty often with students and often introducing people to israel in general and certainly to the city of jerusalem and the old city for the first time which is an, an awesome privilege Do you ever get to go back? Do you ever, you know, go with like groups of athletes or players, things like that?
1: You know, I I have, we, I ended my pro career in 2014 and I haven't been back. You know, there was COVID and then, you know, I was in business school Then I have kid. I have two young kids now. So, you know, life, life happens pretty quick, but still in, in close contact with our family in Israel and friends. And it's always in in my heart. Really? It really is. And my wife too. Like it's. Has she been? Yeah, we lived together for the four years that I played. We were there together and wow. we just both, she would say the same things as I'm saying right now, like for both of us, it was just such a privilege, so special. Yeah, it's, it's the Holy land for a reason.
0: We, we got to get you back there, dad. Come on. We got to oh, make like know. an athlete's family mission or something like that.
1: I know. Oh, one of these days, I got to get my kids up and running. You know, I got <laughs> almost four, almost one, so we have our hands full. Oh, baby,
0: you got to get some babysitting yeah. for that. Leave them with your parents at home. And that's
1: you know. right. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so, what are you doing today, Dan? What's? Are you, it sounds like you're in business. It looks like you went back to business school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interesting that you didn't get into the executive side of the game. Is there a reason for that? And, and what did you want to end up doing long term career?
1: Yeah. Everyone always said, uh, like, "Oh, Dan, Dan's gonna be a GM like his dad." I I know the game. I love it. I grew up around it, and I always thought that. I always thought that I'd just do what my dad did. Life takes you where where you're supposed to, and we're still always writing our stories, right? So I'm 39 years old right now. You never say never to anything. You never know where where the path's going to take you. But I was, you know, I was a good student at Stanford. I was an academic all American, which I'm very proud of, and that was again just hard work. And for my grandmother, you know, she loved going to school but she couldn't be educated because of the holocaust and so people you know when she could sell people you know my my grandson you know is at stanford and, and is doing well like that that was a big part of it right and so i cared about school i cared about academics i went back to school to get my mba joined a startup we were there for some time joined a venture capital firm where i work on the operation side and so it's been a good fit for me it's a lot of the things that i loved about being an athlete you know the communication the teamwork the competitiveness i get to do that kind of in the startup world right so i enjoy what i'm doing but i'm still i'm still plugged into the game right even us talking now being able to talk about hoops and my book of course you know brings that up and it's in my blood and it's something that i'll always have as part of my life in one way or another it just isn't isn't part of it professionally at this point you know but our our paths kind of go where they will and so we'll see
0: i was gonna ask you you Still, stay connected to the game in in a more direct fashion. Do you do you play pickup at all? Do you coach any you know local high school teams? Like, how do you stay connected to the game?
1: Yeah, first of all, I, I, my dad and I just we talk about it a lot and always just checking in. Watch when I can. I have so many friends who are involved, so we'll just catch up and say, hey, man, what what are you seeing? What are you hearing? But you know, so just really chatting about it. I'm not coaching any teams or anything like that. The book again. Like I'll go and speak at a synagogue or at a JCC or at a non-Jewish affiliated group, and I'll always chat with people about you know New York City basketball or Tennessee basketball or the NBA because they they know my dad, and and so there is that level of connection, but nothing formal,
0: and no weekly pickup game, huh?
1: When I was living in California, I played with a great group of guys. I really enjoyed it. But obviously, COVID kind of slowed it all down and we yeah. would, you know, get back into it a little bit once it was safe to do so. But then I moved and I haven't found a, a game that that kind of I can settle into. You know, at my, where I'm at right now, I want it to be competitive, but not too competitive, you know, because you always have that chip after you've yeah. played professionally. And for me, I just don't want to get hurt and I want to enjoy it. I don't you know, there's nothing to prove. It's just to have fun and, you know, you have to really find the right group to do that. And so I had that in California and I need to find that now.
0: Is it hard for you to play with, you know, guys who are just at a lower level of of skill or at this point you're, you're cool with kind of a a broad group?
1: Oh, bro. I I love playing with a broad group. Listen, sometimes I'm the guy at a lower level of skill. Like if I'm playing with like, you know, like NBA all-stars, which happens. And so it's no, no, never any disrespect it's all love for me in basketball. Like if you play the game, if you enjoy the game, like let's do it. It's really just about like acting the right way. Cause you know, sometimes people have things to prove on the court and maybe they get to, especially for someone like myself who played professionally and played it in college. Like people want to go at you or be physical, you know, and there are limits to what is probably the right thing for me at this stage, you know, so, <laughs> Got it. but no man, like level wise, like it's all good. Believe me at this age and at this speed that I'm at, my level is not, you know, like I can fit in with anyone on a lower level. Believe me, that's not a
0: problem. <laughs> well, just wait till you hit 40. Then it gets really, not like, a year left. and you're I, almost I, I, there. It sounds <laughs> like you're almost there. <laughs>
1: right. Well, Dan
0: Grunfeld, this has been just a fabulous conversation. I mean, I'm obviously, I'm a huge sports fan and I love, I love playing basketball and, and following it a bit. And, and some of these names to hear about it are really cool, but much more importantly, this is a story about life, a story <laughs> about grit, about redemption. About you know Jewish identity, and there's so much more. and I'm so thrilled and grateful that you did the research to be able to write this book and that you're sharing it with the world. So thank you so so much for your work, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, it was a pleasure. And I'm really grateful. And again, the book is by the grace of the game. And I'm always just so honored for people to pick up a copy, read the story and just even on this podcast, just to share it with everyone. Like it, it really means a lot. So thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. We will link to that in the notes. Please everyone go out and buy your copy. I'm sure on Amazon or wherever books are sold, as they say, Dan Grunfeld, author, longtime basketball aficionado and a wonderful, wonderful individual. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: All right. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know, Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.